Vidyar sometime today um, about the Metta Sutta, which I want to teach tonight. We've been chanting the Metta Sutta every morning, uh, every evening. Um, I said, I want, I want to teach morning. <laughs> I said I wanted to teach a line-by-line line exegesis of the text. I actually, it's one of the three things that I carry with me when I, uh, when I go to teach in different places. I don't take any, I, you know, travel around, you don't know who exactly you're going to be teaching, and you can't take books with you. I take three things with me. I take a poem by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-American poet, uh, called Kindness. I take a poem by Pablo Neruda um, called Keeping Quiet, and I take the Metta Sutta, which I anyway know by heart, but I take along with me. And I want particularly tonight to talk about the Metta Sutta line by line, because there's a way in which, as I read it, it has the whole of the Dharma in it. It's really a complete teaching of uh, the cultivation of wisdom and the compassion that comes from it. But I want to start with um, uh, a question that someone asked me in an interview early this morning, and I told this person that I was going to use this to start with, so she will not be surprised, and it's all right with her if I do. The person came into an interview this morning and said, uh, look, uh, I'm having, first of all, I'm having a great time. This is wonderful. And they said, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that there are many of us or one of us? And what do you think? Uh, what did the Buddha think? So I said, uh, I think the Buddha would have said, I think the Buddha's great contribution to the unfolding of, of uh, a, a new religious view, a central piece of the Buddha's contribution, had to do with his awareness that every single thing, that every single conditioned thing, everything in form, everything that arises is uh, uh, temporal and contingent on everything else that arises and passes away. He was born into a culture with um, a religious understanding at the center that there is God and that each individual has within that individual a non-changing aspect of that divinity, Atman. Sometimes it's uh, translated as a soul, something special to that person. And that piece of that person, wherever it is in that person, is uh, everlasting and non-changing, enduring from lifetime to lifetime. One of the central insights of the Buddha is that there's nothing that's not changing and that every single thing changes. There can't be anything about anyone that was permanently and enduringly separate from anything else because then there would be a separation. And the Buddha's view is that there is no separation, that it's all interconnected contingency. Um, I think one of us, in sometime in this week, used the description of Indra's net, of everything, every uh, individual, every bit of uh, conditioned arising being part of this whole fabric of creation, of experience. 
So I said the Buddha would have said there aren't many. There is either one or uh, nothing, if you want to see it that way. And she said, well, what do you think? So I said, well, I pretty much agree with the Buddha that everything is, uh, <laughs> everything is contingent on everything else. Everything is interdependent. That there really isn't any separation. That everything is part of a great wholeness. I said, look at us here, just the two of us sitting here and talking to each other. There's a sense in me that I am alive. I have been called into aliveness by your question. My sense of myself is in relation to you at this point, and your sense of yourself is in relation to me. We exist here as separate individuals in relationship to each other and in relationship to the dialogue that's happening between us and the fact that we are caring about each other and interested in each other. So in that sense, we have, we have uh, breathed ourselves into life. And I said, and what's more, we couldn't be having this conversation if the trees all around us and all around the whole world weren't still operating with enough greenery to make enough oxygen for us all to be breathing so that we could be, first of all, alive and second of all, breathing in order to have this conversation. So I said, we are breathing ourselves into and each other into existence with the support of the trees. So I said, I think there's all, it is all one and just one. And I said, what do you think? And she said, I think the same. (laughs) So she said, here's my question. If there's only one of us, what are we doing here with wishing me and wishing you and wishing her and wishing him and wishing this one and wishing the other one? She said, why are we doing that? She said, does it matter? Doesn't matter, does it, she said? Aren't we always saying for everyone? And I think we are. Tomorrow we'll get to be talking about making well-wishing for all beings on all realms But truth to tell, well-wishing is well-wishing. It's not like email. It doesn't go to specific recipients, you know. Sometimes it feels like that, you know. I want to put a little caveat around that. When I pray for people, I feel like maybe it's going specially to that person. I hope it is. When I pray in certain directions and someone's in my mind, I hope that they feel it or I hope that it has a special impact. But I don't think it goes like email. I think if my heart is in a loving place, then my being will be in a loving place, and my contribution to the cosmos, to the cosmic soup around me, will be a loving contribution to it. Kind of like sweetening the air around us. I think, actually, that I I believe for sure that the principal recipient of all of my well-wishing of everyone's well-wishing, is the well-wisher herself or himself. Imagine, I can't imagine actually, even when we get to a day like today where we begin to include the difficult person in the well-wishing. We say now we'll add a difficult person That difficult person was there in the aura of your well-wishing all the time. As you wish, the wishes go out from you. 
I think what would be more correct to say when we say now we will include in our well-wishing someone who's been difficult, it's maybe more correct to say now I will make myself conscious of the pain that I feel when I become aware of the fact that my good heart is restricted by an unresolved conflict by someone. That would be more like what it is. Now I will make myself aware of that. There's a Tibetan practice, this Tanglin practice, where really people, I've done a little bit of it in a formal way, not a whole lot, so I can't behave as an expert about it, but one purposely breathes in difficulties in the world and has the intention to breathe them out through one's own heart, purified. When I first heard that, I thought, well, I don't know how a single person could purify the whole world, but I have two understandings that's much clearer for me about that. I think a single person purifies what that single person purifies. And I think what it does most for me when I think in those terms and practice those kinds of practices is it shows me the limitations of my own heart. That this practice that you've been doing all week, that we are doing all week with you, that I am doing a lot of the time, serves for me as a template to show me the ways in which my heart is restricted from being open. And really what it shows me is the ways in which I have restricted my own happiness because of it. People say, uh, does it really work? That was another question that comes up a lot in interviews. Does this really work? Does it work to send well-wishing to this one or the other one? And often what people mean by does it work is if we're praying for people's happiness or health or well-being, does it work to make them happier or healthier? And I'd I'd like to think that it does. Um, Often they ask by what agency? Does it go directly through the airwaves or does it go through the connection waves or does it go up to some divine agency or is that divine agency right here or is it in this plane of existence or another plane of existence and I don't know um, (laughs) what I am absolutely sure of is that it works for me it works for me works for me to wish well in this way I am quite clear that at the moment of wishing well for anyone, for myself, for my benefactor, for my friends, for neutral people, for all beings, for people who have been difficult, who are difficult in my life, in any moment that my heart is wishing well, it is becoming um, peaceful. It's not turmoiling itself up. It's the kindest thing I can do to myself to put myself in a blessing mood. If I can manage it, I am comforted. If I am comforted, I get some balance in my mind, get some equanimity in my mind. It was very important uh, that we end this week with the wonderful discussion, that the, the talk that Guy gave this afternoon, and then the discussion after it about equanimity. It is crucial that the mind and heart be filled with equanimity for the real metta, real karuna, real mudita to manifest, they have to come out of a place of wisdom that depends on balance. It works for me if my mind is comforted. It becomes 
more peaceful, if my mind is peaceful, I can see more clearly. If I see more clearly, I see what's true, and I see really it couldn't be otherwise. Things are what they are because of everything that's happened, and they could be different from now on. They will be different from now on, and they will be different depending on what happens now, and my contribution to what happens now is my piece of the different future. I think it conditions in me more and more of a zeal about impeccability. It was a wonderful word, impeccability. It was one of the things that I heard when I first began this practice. And it just rang so well in my ears. I loved it. And I'm appreciating it more and more. The desire to live out of a place of lovingness, out of the recognition that it is the happiest way to live for myself and it makes a better world. I can only change this heart and mind. When we, the equanimity meditation that we did this afternoon really points to that. We can wish well for other people. We can wish that they are happy. We can wish that their circumstances be good. The mysterious ways in which wishes may affect circumstances I don't know. And I I don't know if I can really affect people's ability to be happy regardless of their circumstances, good or not so good. Because I think very much, as Guy was pointing out this afternoon, that a lifetime or lifetimes of practice, of conditioning the heart to accepting, to openness, to surrender, is really what's key to, to happiness regardless of circumstances. So I don't know how much I affect other people, other people's inner reality, but I can affect my own inner reality. And if I change mine, I make a difference in the world. I'd love the story, just bring it to mind for a minute, of the crazed elephant charging down and the Buddha with the power of his uh, metta, bringing the elephant to a place of peace and Um, ease, really. So I think of it as not the Buddha conquering the elephant or the Buddha dominating the elephant, but the Buddha expressing compassion for the elephant. I always, when I hear that story, hear the adjective crazed with the elephant, that they selected a crazed elephant that would come charging down to do this heinous act on the Buddha. And I think to myself, in a way, Anytime someone acts in a way to do a terrible act on someone else, they're crazed. That's not a clear-seeing thing to do. If we really understood the suffering in the world, if we really understood uh, how uh, precious life is, how everyone cherishes their own life, how everyone cherishes who is dear to them, we would never do harm to anyone. And I think of this practice as being a way of relating to the world in that way, of bringing it to a place of peace through our own understanding of peace. The Neruda poem that I carry with me from place to place, I carry for the, for the one particular line in it, says we should all stop and count to 12. And then it goes on to say if we did that, we would see how much everyone is suffering how much difficulties we bring to each other, how much we keep hurting each other. 
Then it says, if we would stop and count, which means to me, if we only would stop for a minute and look around, here's the line that says, perhaps a huge silence would interrupt this terrible sadness of not understanding each other and of frightening each other to death. If we stopped and looked around, I imagine what would it be like tomorrow if the whole world got up in the morning and looked around and said, what are we doing to each other? Wars all over the world. Not only the wars that are in our front pages, but civil wars all over the place and wars between countries. One of the side pieces of news that I read in, about the aftermath of this tsunami is that in those countries where there were civil strife, civil wars, all of a sudden faced with the enormity of this tragedy, everyone has kind of stopped fighting with each other. I think it's that everybody got it. They're stopped by the enormity of the loss that they share and they stop fighting with each other while they deal with the loss. I'm thinking maybe this will be the event in the world's history where everyone says, look what could happen. We are all human beings. We will all be affected by loss. In the, in the most perfect of peaceful worlds, everyone is affected by the loss of who they love through death, through accident, through illness, to do it extra through violence bring such sadness to think that people do that. Perhaps a huge silence would interrupt this terrible sadness of not understanding each other and of frightening each other to death. Could we see that without, could we see that and change? Could we look at the world, see what they're doing and not be mad at it? Ask it just to change. You know, it just came to me. I uh, spent a month in, uh, uh, in November on a personal retreat in Santa Fe. And uh, part of my retreat was every day I went out for a long walk in the middle of the day. And I would walk two and a half miles from where I was down to the central square in Santa Fe. And I'd walk around the square and... Uh, then I'd walk the two and a half miles back. So I had a five-mile walk every day. And uh, the, the uh, Cathedral of St. Francis is the, one of the main features in the square in Santa Fe. And so that would be part of my walk. I'd go into the cathedral. They have a meditation room there. I'd sit down, rest, sit for a little bit. And then I would walk around the main um, um, part of the cathedral. And it has the Stations of the Cross in uh, paintings. Sometimes they're in sculptures and paintings all around on the wall. And I had some familiarity with them. I know a little bit about the practice of uh, looking at them and reflecting on them. And, uh, I was particularly impressed. It was the most touching rendition of them that I can remember seeing because they're uh, not exaggerated in... Uh, I think the fact that they are drawn so simply and the painfulness of the scenes 
is just what it is. They're not exaggerated. The heart is moved to such a response, particularly the, the one in which uh, Jesus is being nailed to the cross and his face looks so surprised, looks more than anything surprised that human beings would do a thing like that. doesn't look angry. It isn't excessively um, grievous. He's not struggling. I, I imagine if he would to say something at that point, he would be saying, look what people do. It's almost as if it's unbelievable. I think because there's so little struggle in it, just recognizing how sad it is, this is what people do, that it's so touching. I think if we would um, see the sadness of what we do, we'd be changed. Sometimes people leave retreats and on the last day they say, I'm afraid to go home because I uh, feel so open. I feel very vulnerable. And I think I've become too vulnerable. And I like it when people say that because then I get to say, I don't think there's any such thing as too vulnerable. I'm waiting for the entire world to become too vulnerable. And then we will all sit down simultaneously and cry. And then we'll get up and take care of each other better. So this is the Metta Sutta. And I think it's the whole of the Dharma, really. We chant it every day. You can look at it as I do it. You know, the, the Buddha's practice is often divided into three uh, categories. The categories are uh, sila samadhi panya, the cultivation of morality, ethical purity, the cultivation of uh, a steady, clear-seeing mind, samadhi, and the development of wisdom, panya. I love the first line of this. It's, I love the fact that it's so declarative. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in wisdom and who know the path of peace. I'd, you know, it just has such a uh, reassuring ring to me. It doesn't say maybe this would be a good thing to do or this is one of the things that you could do. Or It says this is it. This is what should be done. I, when I was reflecting on it this afternoon, I looked at it again. And, I, and all of a sudden, I uh, heard the voice of one of my, uh, all of my children have children, but I heard the voice of one of my particular daughters who's so good about the way she talks to her children. And I, can, I could just hear her in that moment saying to her children who had gotten a little bit on each other's nerves and everybody else's nerves, now is the time for a time out. Let's go to the rooms. In a way that that isn't mean. It's just now is the time for a time out. I thought what this world needs is one tremendous mommy that would say, <laughs> now is the time for a time out. Everybody go to your room, think it over, and when you get it straight, come out. This is what should be done for those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. This is the path of peace. This is the path that leads to peace through wisdom because when you see the suffering in the world, really, the only response to it can be that peace which, respect, which expresses itself in goodwill and compassion and appreciation. And it's the path of developing peace so that you can come to that insight. It starts with peace, it ends with peace. It's a circular path that never ends. 
It is the continual recultivation of peace against all odds, really. I say to people frequently, um, when I'm te- especially when I'm teaching in a new place and they don't know me well and I need to start in some way, I'll say something like, how are you managing these days to keep your heart alive? And people will look to see if I actually said that. And <laughs> then I'll say, um, against all odds. And then they get it. It's very hard to keep, a, we've used the term a responsive heart so many times. It's very hard to keep the heart responsive. If the heart were responsive, it would be friendly, it would be compassionate, and it would be appreciative. Those are the three permutations of the responsive heart. But it needs to have a base of equanimity, out of which it can befriend and console and appreciate. It's hard to maintain that. We are all the time startled by things that happen. One of the things that helps the heart maintain its peace and equanimity is a dedication to ethical living. The taking of the precepts that we did when we came, the taking, many people actually take those precepts every day when they get up. People have them tacked to their mirror. People have them uh, pasted to their computer frame. People get up and chant them as part of their morning practice. I dedicate myself to not adding one bit of pain into this already overpained world is really the short version of all those precepts. I looked at that next line, let them be able and upright, and I thought of a question that somebody asked this afternoon about, um, is this really a practice that um, pushes people to respond in the world, or does that understanding about things are just what they are and couldn't be different, does that, li- does that lead to a kind of passivity or quietism or acceptance? And Guy pointing out again the very crucial difference between equanimity and its near enemy indifference, that inspire equanimity inspired by wisdom, which is actually... Uh, part and really integral part of equanimity that another way of understanding equanimity is it is the field in which insights arise and wisdom is clear that the wisdom includes the fact of the truth of suffering and since it includes the truth of suffering it can't do anything other than inspire bodhicitta the desire to respond to the world with kindness so I was thinking of able and upright. I don't know what the, the Pali word for upright is and if it has other possible um, translations, but I would like to translate it just for tonight as showing up, that it's not only understanding what's happening, but having enough energy in the system, which is really a, a moment of, uh, of clear seeing, clear understanding what's happening and having the energy to respond to it straightforward and gentle in speech. I I was thinking when I looked at that just this evening that straightforward clearly means uh, not uh, fabricating things, telling the truth. It's, again, a very crucial part of uh, morality training. It's one of the ten paramitas, truthfulness. 
um, uh, the dedication to right speech, which is one of the uh, precepts that we took. Right speech includes the dedication to telling the truth. Truthful and helpful, helpful is what the Buddha said, anything that you say ought to be. Not just the truth, but truth, uh, truthful and helpful. Because sometimes you can tell people the truth and it's hurtful. But truthful and helpful. And gentle. Actually, that's one of the, another one of the uh, teachings involved in right speech. I also thought that when I was thinking about the gentle in speech, my, uh, my friend Tony, who teaches um, uh, 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 mindfulness in uh, Davis, maybe some of you from Davis, has been telling me uh, about his pers- one of his personal practices, actually his equanimity practice, I actually think it's saint practice, but he says it's his equanimity practice. He listens to vituperative talk radio. He, uh, and uh, when he first told me about it uh, six months ago, before there was talk radio on the right as well as on the left, vituperative, he was uh, uh, on the left as well as on the right, vituperative, he was listening to the commentators that uh, I would have never thought to listen to because they not only have political views that I don't have, but they talk in such a not gentle way and in such a harsh way. And Tony said, no, no, it's very good for me. So I get in my car and it takes me a certain amount of time to get to the freeway and I have a contest with myself about can I get all the way to the freeway before I get aggravated about what they're saying? <laughs> Can I hold it together? Can I? And he said, I'm training myself, and he's quite serious about it. Uh, he said, because I say to myself as I'm listening, first of all, what if they're right? And I think to myself, this is where it pushes my limits, because when I listen, I think to myself, I tried Tony's practice. I think to myself, what if they're right? But they're not. So I, mean, <laughs> I have hardly any room in there. He said, but, but he said it's actually very helpful. You know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> he said, I think to myself, these people have families. They want to be happy just as I do. Um, and they can say whatever they say and they can believe whatever they believe and I am free not to become upset about it. Becoming upset is in my, is in my court. They can say whatever they want. I am free to put my heart in a place of peace and keep it there. He said, I am practicing equity. This is when he said to me, I am practicing equanimity. I said, I think you are practicing sainthood but um, I actually, it's a whole, I, I don't want to get involved in the whole thing because now there's talk radio presumably represent, it is, does represent a political view closer to mine. And I have a very hard time listening to it. It's not gentle. It's harsh. And uh, I feel badly about the people whose political view and whose obvious uh, real grasp of a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, is very uh, impressive to me. Um, can be harsh in their presentation. I have a view that they should be otherwise. I could be wrong. 
humble and not conceited. We'll leave the humble because it's going to come up again and not proud a little bit later. Um, but humble again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. If I really did that as a practice, actually my friend David Zeller, who's a rabbi in uh, Israel, long ago, um, 20, 30 years ago, I remember him teaching a workshop and saying, here is a practice that everyone who's in a teaching position, it's a meditation for people in a, uh, a magic mantra actually, for people in a teaching position, they should recite this magic mantra every single day for 10 minutes. You see everybody leans forward in the chair. And he said, this is the magic mantra. I could be wrong. (laughs) So, humble, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Actually, it would be good for my equanimity if if I really believed I could be wrong because then I wouldn't get so upset. Everybody's telling untruths, people will hear them. They'll do the wrong thing, they'll vote, they'll vote wrong, and then I get all upset about it. I could be wrong. I could really preserve the peace in my own heart more if I were a little bit more humble about my opinions. Contented and easily satisfied. Contented seems to me to be in some ways a definition of wisdom. It's like this. It couldn't be otherwise. There's a gospel song that uh, says, uh, if you search the whole, you look the whole world over, there's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. But a satisfied mind, one that says, this is the way it is, it can't be otherwise. It's really uh, the inverse way to say what the Buddha taught about the cause of suffering is the craving that it be otherwise the insatiable need to have it other than what it is rather than saying it's like this. Easily satisfied. Actually, that wasn't, that, again, I, didn't, I, I thought when I saw it today, easily satisfied would be the fruit of really understanding that second noble truth that the cause of suffering is tana, craving, needing to have it another way. We really understood the pain, the suffering, involved in that craving, we would be more, we would come to be more, we'd learn, we would become more easily satisfied out of the visceral, um, direct understanding of the pain of craving. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. I think about that's what we are here. Everybody has been, more or less, you have a 45 minutes, an hour of a job every day. But, you know, compared to life, this is easy. I mean, this is, this is really easy. You know, one little job for an hour, wash some dishes, something. Unburdened by duties. And frugal in their ways. You know how I'm increasingly understanding that? I am easily seduced into uh, projects uh, because... Uh, I am beginning to think of myself. I hadn't thought of this before. Buddhists think of people as having a greed nature, an aversive nature, or a delusive nature. My friends tell me I'm delusive. I don't believe it. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not aversive. But I am actually discovering that I'm greedier than I thought I was. And I'm not greedier for acquisition. I don't need stuff. Um, 
but I am I think I'm greedy for experience it's hard for me to turn things down you know I, I, I sometimes think I make all these rules about having a schedule that will really be conducive to a peaceful heart and lots of time for contemplative being and uh, someone calls with an offer want to teach here want to teach there and I'm interested in everything and I have the feeling that Someone called and said, do you want to teach the first meditation retreat on the moon? I'd probably, you know, it's a little inconvenient, you know. But, you know, the moon, you know. That's a, that it's hard for me to say, no, thank you, I've got enough. I've been really working on that. That would be frugal in my ways. Peaceful and calm. I, I really like it that peaceful and calm is in here because it suggests that it can be cultivated, that you can decide, I'm going to be peaceful and calm. Guy has said this a number of times, if you want to be something, if you want to have something be your truth, you be that. You say, okay, now I'm being peace, now I'm being calm. You learn it into your neurons, into your viscera. Peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud. I, this, it's different from humble, actually. Not proud is really a deep understanding of selflessness, of there's no one in here that can be proud of what we do or actually embarrassed of what we do, that what comes out of us comes out as a result of... If I teach well, it's because I've had very good teachers in very good circumstances and very good support. And sometimes if I teach really well, I, I really think about the merit of all the people that are coming through me at that time that are teaching. I just happen to be the person sitting here at this time. And sometimes if I don't teach well, it's a, it's a great help to think, well, you know, at this point, the circumstances and the conditions weren't great, but there isn't an I that needs to be responsible for it. I can't be proud, but then it takes, it takes away a great deal of the burden of feeling humiliated. I didn't do it right. Just this time, it worked out differently. It's all always the karma of the moment. I love this last line of the, of the sila practice. Letting them, let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. Isn't that a beautiful way to say, be impeccable? I'll tell you what I'm doing now about a practice for that, about don't do the slightest thing. It's in response to what I see is my um, uh, in, in impulsive uh, reaching for things like people bring something. You want to do this? You want to be on this committee? You want to go to the moon? Here's another interesting thing to do. That's another interesting thing to do. So I've been telling people, I, I'll, I'll tell you the day after tomorrow, I have a new practice, spiritual practice that I'm doing. And people are also always interested in the new spiritual practice. What's your new spiritual practice? So my new spiritual practice is called thinking it over. <laughs> so wishing in gladness and in safety, that's probably the most important line in the whole sutta, because in order to wish, the heart needs to be feel safe because that's what accounts for the equanimity. It has to feel completely at ease so it can relax. And glad. And I am, I am thinking to myself, that gladness is gladdened by the awareness of the amazingness of creation, that all of this is happening, that I get to be a part of it, you get to be a part of it, that there, is, that there are people, that it is spring, that the deer will have babies any minute and the trees will make buds any minute. And all the things that lift up the heart in delight so that, in fact, we want this life and we cherish it. 
We want to stay alive. We want the people we love to stay alive. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. That's the important line, omitting none. Whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. The omitting none is so important. It means that in order to be able to really, with a whole heart, wish well, omitting none, that we have to let go of every view that is in there, that this person or this part of my life is unforgivable. To really have a total forgiveness. I always think of the line from Eliot for quartets, costing not less than everything. To give up every view that says, it wasn't fair, it wasn't good, this person did me wrong, this person. It all has to go, every view. It was what it was, it couldn't have been other. No victims no villains, then wishing can happen. And then the wishing itself. I used to think that uh, this particular sutta didn't have instructions. I read it for many years, thinking it just said, uh, just do it, and it didn't tell you how. But actually, I'm convinced it does tell you how. First of all, it tells you in these next four lines um, some ways in which how. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will, because that's how it happens, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. That means under no circumstances can you get prodded into ill will, wishing ill, anger arising and letting it turn into ill will. We are all the time prodded by circumstances, by people. So the instruction that's hidden in these four lines is that this is actually asking us to renounce, to renounce ill will, to vow against ill will. It's toxic, ill will, in my own body. It's confusing ill will because I can't think straight. But it's a hard vow because it's so easy. We're easily insulted or annoyed or peeved. or We have ill will against the person on the highway who's driving too fast or too slow or too close or too what. It's very hard not to have it come up. When Guy read that uh, uh, those twin verses from the Dhammapada today, he robbed me. He wronged me. I think it's he robbed me. He abused me. He beat me. In those who continue these thoughts, unhappiness follows them as the cart follows the ox. So not only can we be annoyed in the moment by what's happening, we can be annoyed by the memory of what already happened. So renouncing of everything that's happening that of ill will in this moment 
and renouncing those repetitive thoughts of the past that cause ill will to arise. So I want to tell you two images, if I have time to do it, that I think are so inspiring about the heart-based in equanimity. One of them is the classic image from Buddhism of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment sits down under the under the bow tree in, uh, in Bodhgaya and uh, is uh, determined to sit there until he understands fully the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. And the legend has it that Mara, who is the personification of uh, the intention, everything evil, the intention to distract the Buddha from his cause, which will liberate himself and liberate all beings, comes to distract him. And Mara flings arrows of dangerous things at the Buddha. And he has built around him a protective uh, shield of the radiated metta. Just like the, the strength of the shield of the, of the, that he will later radiate on the rampaging uh, elephant. So here he is covered by this shield. Mara is um, throwing flaming arrows and all kinds of other fearful thoughts. Also, Mara is uh, then producing for the Buddha a display of erotic thoughts that might otherwise also captivate his mind because we get captivated by what is pleasant and we get captivated by what is frightening and unpleasant. And in the story, in the image, all of these um, threats to the Buddha's equanimity come at him and he sits there radiating the metta and all of them fall onto the shield around him and fall on the ground as flowers. And I love that, the idea that you could protect yourself and everything that came out, that came to you with malintent would fall down as flowers. I think we have in, in everybody's culture stories that let children know that they can habituate their heart to kindness and not respond. I thought about reading you the Jataka tale about the great buffalo who is the Buddha in a former incarnation who also sits through taunts and threats and proddings and never loses it, always remains calm and loving and peaceful and helpful. I thought instead, just because we uh, have another culture, that I would just show you one picture from the middle of uh, a book of children's classics. The story of Ferdinand was written and published in the year that I was born, in 1936. And you remember that Ferdinand was a very peaceful bull who liked more than anything to sit under a cork tree and smell the flowers. And all the other bulls ran around and butted their heads and snorted and pawed the ground and got taken away to fight in the bullfights in Madrid and they wanted to do it and he didn't. It said, there's a line where it says, his mother worried about him because he didn't run around with all the other bulls and she asked him, you know, to do that. Are you happy? And he said, no, I'm very happy here under the cork tree. And in a picture that's several pages back, he said his mother left him there because um, she, because she, even, she was a very understanding mother, even though she was a cow. And uh, <laughs> it relates to the next line in the Metta Sutta. I just want to show you him sitting in the middle of the bullfight in Madrid. You see, here thousands and thousands of people, and they bring him, and he 
trots out by mistake, you know. He wasn't pawing the ground, actually. He was sitting under his crockery. He sat down on a bee, is what happened, and the bee stung him. And he got up and he pawed the ground and jumped around because he'd been stung. And just so happened that the people who were in charge of finding good budding and snorting bulls just happened to come at that moment. And they took him off to Madrid. So here he is. Ferdinand ran to the middle of the ring and everyone... And everyone shouted and clapped because they thought that he was going to fight fiercely and butt and snort and stick his horns around. But not Ferdinand. When he got to the middle of the ring, he saw all the flowers in the lovely lady's hair, and he just sat down and quietly smelled. <laughs> the end of the story is they took him back. He refused. The, actually, the uh, all of the... the, the, the um, Picadores came out and prodded him, and the matador came out and prodded him, and they said the matador was so unhappy that he couldn't show off with his cape and his sword that he cried. But Ferdinand sat there, and they took him home, happy. (laughs) Just as a mother protects with her life her one and only child, I think that this image gets used cross-culturally. Ferdinand's mother protects her child, Everybody's mother protects their child. We are, um, I think we understand somehow the feeling. I don't think it's, I don't think it's confined to mothers. I think fathers protect their children. But in, in, throughout animals, the whole animal kingdom, I think to myself, the image that often comes up is that I think about whales that are born swimming. And I remember reading about how mother whales are sure, position themselves as their whale baby is getting born so that the baby is born on the lee side of the wave so that it's protected as it comes out from the force of the wave. I think that that's what's in it. We just protect. This morning I looked out and there was a lot of crying happening in the room this morning and I thought, you know, I don't know why people are crying. People cry all the time and it's fine to cry. So a lot of crying this morning and I was thinking that maybe people were really either encountering the pain that they felt with someone who was difficult or in discovering that they could open their heart to that person, the relief of letting go of the closed heart, which is also a source of crying. And at one point, uh, you know, we have all these rules here about keep your own space and leave everybody alone. And that's the best rule. But I looked up and someone was crying. And someone else had reached out and touched that person, just like that, and then took their hand back. So I'm suggesting to you that everybody keep their own space. But when I looked out, I thought, that is the quintessential human gesture, that we reach out and touch somebody when we intuit or we know that they're in pain. I was flying over the Rockies once, coming back from New York, and all of a sudden, They had what the pilot later said was a mountain wave. I hadn't ever heard that before again. But you're riding along and they have no idea it's going to be turbulence and all of a sudden boom, 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 boom. It was quite shocking and it went on for a long period of time. And I had not been talking to the woman next to me and I didn't know her at all. And really, I mean, it was bouncy. You couldn't even talk. But I put out my hand and she held it and I held hers. Until and we, here we are, we're grown women, we don't know each other. But it's much better to hold somebody's hand when you're scared. And, and we finished. Thank you very much. <laughs> 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 
freed from hatred and ill will because that's what the practice of eschewing ill will and hatred all together, renouncing it. That's what the sutta says. Don't do it. Open your heart. Let it go. Do whatever you need to do to recognize that you've been hurt, recognize that anger has arisen. Do not let it take hold. And do not let the anger turn into ill will. Freed from hatred and ill will because that's what confuses the mind. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said, this recollection, don't do other than keep the peace. I actually, I just remember it's gotten dark. So we are now entered into the, the Jewish Sabbath day. And the, the um, greeting that you do is Shabbat Shalom, Sabbath peace you wish for people. I'm thinking that when my mind has a sabbatical, when it puts down all its cares and worries, and when, in addition, it puts down all its grudges, it puts down everything that it's hard to carry around, like old hurts, old memories, old wounds, just puts them down. Then there is that peace. Mind takes a sabbatical. I think the sabbatical is related to the word Sabbath. And I think it's um, uh, inherent in it is the concept of peace, is the truth of peace. Freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. That means all the time because, you know, those poor postures are the only postures that you are ever in. So it means all the time. There's no, I mean, there's nothing else other than tilting or kneeling, but <laughs> otherwise. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. Again, by not having anything that you can't let go of. I could be wrong. I could see it a new way. I could forgive. By not holding to fixed views, the pure one, having clarity of vision, being freed from sense desires, the clarity of vision is what frees you from craving because you see the pain in it, the suffering in it, is not born again into this world. I am interpreting that born again into this world as born again into rounds of suffering. And I'm, I don't know about subsequent lives, if they happen or if they don't happen. I have subsequent lives of being reborn into suffering every time I am trapped into a fixed view into something that I can't let go of, into a place of non-peace. The clarity of vision, this is the promise of panya, of, of wisdom. This is the last part. Freed from hatred and ill will, we, it's possible to have vision, insight, understanding, the truth of how things are, that they are changing all the time, that suffering comes from grasping. And there is nothing other than interdependence. I, you, he, she, we, in the garden of mystic lovers. These are not true distinctions. Come to understand that, in fact, we, the metta resolves are a formula that trains the heart and mind, but it's a formula in the way that we're doing it.
And it works. It's a good formula. It's a heuristic device. It works. But really, the question that this person asked me this morning, aren't we doing it for everyone all the time? We are. All the time for everyone, for ourselves and for all beings. There is only one. I have uh, recently learned this line from Hafiz, the Persian poet, and I like it very much. I have come into this world to see only one thing, that the sword should fall from man's hand at the height of the arc of his anger because he has seen that there is just one body to wound and it is God. So let's sit for one minute now. I often tell people that on retreat it's hard to keep track of what day is a Sabbath and what day is not because every day is exactly like every other day. So I wish for us all may we have Sabbath peace this day and every day. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 7, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.